Hi everyone, this is Joshua Hoffman and welcome to another episode of the Masters in Marketing Agency podcast, where we deconstruct the why and how agency owners found their success and discuss a few things they learned along the way. Today I have Stephen Caffrey, the founder of SponsorCart, an on-site shoppable video advertising platform for retailers. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks for having me, Josh. Of course, and I want to start off this one with arguably my favorite topic. We've kind of already broke this down a little bit, so I want to dive in further, and that's obviously philosophy. Uh, you studied it in college, so I'm just opening up with why the heck did you choose that as a major? Well, I guess it was just I realized I didn't have anything figured out at that age, and that was probably around 22. So I went and studied philosophy quite late, maybe 21 years old. That was back in 2001. And so I kind of already flunked out of college once trying to study uh, French and, and English, failed it, dropped out of first year. I had to repeat my exams to get back into college. And it, it was kind of like, it was just me saying, I don't know what I want to do. I didn't have a direction. I, I just wanted to see if I could figure out what, what it was that this life is. I can't say I got that after the degree. I just got more questions. Um, but the one thing about philosophy and studying philosophy and really really giving it my all was that the degree in philosophy showed me that if I apply myself, I can be successful at the things I do. And that was the first time in my life that I had proven that to myself, genuinely proven that to myself, where I was cognizant of it. So yeah, that was, that, you know, that's what philosophy gave me. And in addition to, you know, many existential questions that we, we sort of talked about, you know, yeah. off air. Do you, do you have a favorite philosopher? Or, or I always gravitate gravitated toward the existentialists. Not that I fully understand them, like the Kierkegaards, the Heideggers, Manuel Kant, transcendentalism. You know, the stuff that was really challenging to understand that really gets to the core of what is existence. Uh, that's the stuff that I gravitated on. But like, I mean, my introduction was through Descartes and, you know, those kind of easier philosophers to understand. Yeah, but I, I know you're kind of, you, you have your own kind of brand of uh, philosophy. I naturally fell into Stoicism, uh, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, yeah, Epictetus, that kind of stuff. Um, but before we die, before we make the entire episode about philosophy, uh, we'll, we'll probably, well, I guess the, the other question I would have there is, you know, is there anything that you think you did take from anything philosophy, especially learning in college that you did bring to, you know, the businesses that you run? Literally other than the, the, the realization that either the application of effort can yield the results, you know, that you expect, uh, there's not a lot I can apply over to business. Business has been a total, you know, new learning curve and starting companies. I mean, I, in college I was starting companies and, you know, they were mostly in the gray area, you know, uh, of, of just trying to hustle to, to generate uh, revenue. Uh, and, you what know, you after them, what did you learn from them then? Look, I always had the hustle in me and I always had the desire to want to do something. I was, uh, you know, to, to do something on my own. You know, after a degree in philosophy, I studied entrepreneurial studies thinking, hey, like you can you can teach people how to start businesses in an academic environment. You know, and I wrote a business model for bringing Mexican food to Ireland uh, based on based on Chipotle, which I thought like was, was you know, mind blowing the success of Chipotle in the U.S. We didn't have Mexican food in Ireland. Uh, I wrote a business plan for it. But ultimately, none of it really applies when you're in the fog of war. 
And it wasn't until I started my first company in 2013 that I began to realize, you know, you might as well throw out anything you've learned academically. Uh, this is just going to be like a roller coaster where the, 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 the most important thing you can do, and I didn't realize this till later, was to lose any sense of hubris. And that, that took a few years because in the beginning, we were quite bootstrapped and we were generating profits. But that's kind of the small way to think about it, bootstrapping and generating profit. And you have a lot of hubris. You're like, hey, we're making, we're, we're making money. Uh, to, you know, we have it figured out. You don't have it figured out. And the moment that you realize that you've got to check your ego is the moment that you begin to learn as an entrepreneur. And the entrepreneurial journey is just a constant learning curve. Yeah, I so my first company uh, was definitely run, you know, by my ego. Um, it really was. It was really like I wanted to be CEO. You know, I wanted to be the richest person in the world, all that kind of stuff. And and then you get punched in the face pretty hard. And and if you don't learn at that moment and you try to jump into something else, then you're just gonna, you know, you're just repeating your same mistakes and everything. So um, couldn't couldn't agree more with that. You you, I'm actually gonna go back to when you said you failed out of your out of college at first. Um, and we've had a few episodes where, you know, the founder did not do well in school or something like that or failed out. And obviously we've heard this through, you know, other stories outside of this podcast, but what do you think makes like, like why are people that fail out and don't do well in school? Why do they actually sometimes become entrepreneurs? Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I don't know if it's a necessarily, you know, flunking out of college is necessarily a predicator of your ability to be an entrepreneur, but it may be an indicator that you're, okay with risk and like i've never this is what people have told me about my personality that you know uh, i'm a risk taker i've never really thought of myself as a risk taker. i thought it was quite calculated things i do but i can see why they would say that because i sometimes when i have a goal in mind i just kind of one track push through and you know that can create casualties along the way and some people will consider that an instability in life um, but maybe the flunking out of college and being okay with it, as long as you go and apply yourself, apply your energy into something positive, then it could be a predicator that you're okay with risk. And if you're okay with risk, then you're okay. You're in a position to, you have a core trait of what it takes to start a new business, right? And to go through that process. But I think, you know, I think we tend to glorify like, and this is a relic of like the of the dot com era where hey, I flunked out of college and I started this billion dollar business. It's an underdog story and it's a great narrative to tell everybody. Um, but I, I I landed on both sides of the fence. Like I flunked out of college, but I also figured out I should go to college and I went back and applied myself and went through ac the academic and that taught me a lesson which we kind of which we just discussed, which is like if you apply yourself, yeah, if you apply the energy in the right way, you will more likely than not achieve the results you desire. Yeah, I also think there's a difference between risk and recklessness, uh, which I have been on both sides. Uh, my skiing is reckless. Uh, my business acumen or whatever has, is hopefully getting more on the positive side of risk. So um, I don't know if you have any thoughts I, on that. But I definitely well, think that comes from learning and that comes from checking your ego, you know, which is a, which is a hard thing to do. Um, it also, for me, it also, you know, one of the learnings that I got was because I'd always had this entrepreneurial track where I would do things myself in order to, to achieve the goals, it also limited my ability to scale the businesses out, whether it was the businesses I started in college or the businesses I started after college. 
I, I became the bottleneck to growth. And once I realized this might seem like a genuinely easy thing to do, which is to delegate, to recruit the right people, to pay the right salaries and to delegate out and to trust those people. Until I realized that, I didn't start to understand what it takes to actually scale a company because I would just be the bottleneck in everything. I'd want to insert myself into every process. And, you know, that would fatigue people as well. So that was another kind of learning curve or another learning point that I got once I began to check my own ego. Uh, that was my, that was exactly my next question. Was there a moment that where you think that happens um, or even a collection of moments? Yeah, when you begin to fail. So when I started the first company in 2013, uh, no funding, literally started it in my bedroom of apartment that, uh, that I shared with my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And we had, we literally had no money. This is back in, you know, I've moved to Israel from Ireland, literally to be with this uh, girl. That was a good choice. We, we got married 10, 15 years later and we have two children now. But when we started, we had no money. She was in college. I was working for a low salary. And we had to talk to the landlord. And, you know, I, to this day, I love that guy because I said, listen, I want to start a business. I'm leaving this role I have and I'm not going to be able to pay the rent that you're charging me. And he discounted the rent for about six months until I started to generate revenue with the business. But to this day, I still have like the picture of the first dollar that we made. I screenshotted it. It was uh, it's from online marketing, online advertising. And uh, yeah, I guess I've lost my track. What, what was I talking about? A uh, moment of ego, moment of uh, that ego. Punch. Yeah. So like, so, so sort of starting the company on my own and holding things so tightly that you, you, you can't give it to other people. In the beginning, it was great. And we were able to scale to a few million dollars uh, of revenue and some you know good profit, but it didn't allow us to really blow up the scale of the operation. And so it, it literally took four or five years until that business started to fail, where I realized, hang on a minute, I can't be responsible. I can't be the, the, the point of everything for a company. You have to recruit really good people and you got to pay them their worth as well, or even above their worth and delegate and trust that they will do the job that you need them to do. And that, you know, that, that took many years to actually learn to, to, to do this thing, which I said is to let go of the ego and to not try to, to hold everything so tightly. Okay. So we have uh, college and then college again, and then first company. Uh, can you keep connecting the dots to how you got to sponsor cart? Yeah, so like first company, you know, first legitimately incorporated business was probably a five-year cycle from 2013 to 2018. And they kind of overlap because the we, we, we maintained the name display.io, but the business model was failing. And so as revenues kind of tanked, uh, I went to the investor market with a new idea to say, hey, we want to build a technology for publisher for mobile app publishers that will allow these mobile app publishers to generate revenue from advertising. And so our background was in product and development technology. So I was able to sell that story to investors and raise you know, $1.5 million and then take the business from Israel and you know, open uh, in the US. And sort of that was the next big learning curve, you know, which in, in, in retrospect, showed me that you know it speaks to two things i don't know if it's an ego thing because at that stage i kind of learned that but it showed me that the, the risk the risk part of my personality because what i'd done was uh, you know 
I, I said to my wife, listen, we're going to go to the U.S. I've raised this money and we're going to launch this business in the U.S. We're going to launch this subsidiary in the U.S. And uh, we need to move our life over there. And so, you know, that in itself was like, you know, big risk. And, you know, fair play to my wife. She's been she's had my back since day one on all of this. And we had a young child at the time. So we moved to the U.S. And I quickly realized that this wasn't going to work. And I applied myself out of for like two years. And at that stage, we had offices in Beijing. We had offices in Ukraine. We had an office in, in Israel. And I was trying to open the office in, in the U.S. And the U.S. was a complete failure. Why? Well, I had, I had no network of people in the U.S. to kind of help, you know, speed up the learning curve or to give me a feedback loop. I kind of hired a consultant that didn't also understand that, I, that we had no chance at the stage of the market we entered and the funding that we had to try to penetrate the market. And to be honest, and again, this is such a big mistake when I look back, before I had gone to the U.S. to open the, the office, I was recruiting for advisors in the U.S. that could help us navigate the market. And one advisor said, you don't stand a chance. Um, you know, the market's too mature. You're not, you're not funded enough. And I said, you know, I, I don't believe that. Watch me. I'm going to go and do this. So I recruited other people who were, you know, weren't as sage, weren't as wise as her because I wanted to, I didn't want to hear that. I wanted to go to the US and do it. So it, it, actually, ironically, I just, I just messaged her on LinkedIn. I was like, do you remember I'm the guy where we were talking about advisory and, you know, you gave me this advice. He says, we don't stand a chance. Uh, and I said, you were right. You know, let's, let's connect. And I literally done that like a, just a couple of weeks ago. And this is going back. We had, you know, we had that conversation back in 2018, but I would love her advice on the new, uh, the new company that we've launched sponsor card. So, so that's sort of like the evolution from display.io, display.io version one, which served like an affiliate model to display.io version two, which sort of raised money, built a technology for publishers. Uh, found out along the way it wasn't going to be successful and then pivoted its model to try to create something of incremental value for publishers. And we had some success with that. We were able to generate and grow like a few million dollars of, of advertising revenue through that model. And sort of like to, to kind of tie the story through to the end, it's along the way that I realized that there was a shift in where advertising dollars were being spent. So if you think about it at, at, a, at a macro level, Josh, Advertising has typically gone into search or what we call Google or social, which is controlled by Facebook. That's where the kind of the, 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 the lion's share of dollars would go into these kind of search and social giants. And what I've seen happen over the last you know, one or two years is that advertising dollars are start, starting to flow into retail. And the reason it's flowing to retail is because retailers are sitting on basically all the data that Facebook, Apple, Google, all of these guys, Amazon have all that data. Retailers have all of that together packaged up. They have search data. They know because when we go to walmart.com, they know what we search for. When, when we go to walmart.com, they know what context we're, we're, we're in on the website. When we go to walmart.com, we make a purchase. They have our purchase data. They know what we want to buy. And so when you have that sort of uh, data, advertisers want to buy it. And so what's happening is a multi-billion dollar industry is emerging out of that, both on-site, where we're trying to create solutions, but also off-site, which means retailers can use customer data 
to target customers when they're on NBC.com or New York Times. So that's a really powerful kind of thing to be able to do as a retailer. Uh, and it allows them to kind of grow billion dollar businesses. Like, for example, Target did a billion dollars in advertising revenue last year. Uh, then what, like, what do you think, what tangible change do you think that consumers will see with this shift? If that's the right question. I don't necessarily know if consumers will feel the change. And particularly like if you, if you, if you think about, you know, Amazon has led the way in this sort of retail advertising revolution. They were way, way ahead of even Walmart and Target, like maybe the, the two biggest after. And, and you can kind of say like, you know, what they've done, you, I, I, you know, I don't know if it's the best application of, of advertising because now when you, it's sort of like Google search results. When you search for something like the first two or three listings are paid and they might not always be relevant and there's like an oversaturation of it. And so like there might be a negative connotation if the retailer does it wrong. We're certainly on the other side of that. We're trying to create a better customer experience through advertising. But the, 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 the ideal goal of what advertisers are to, or what retailers are trying to achieve is, you know, blending in um, paid results with something that paid, paid sponsored advertising in a way that feels organic and is relevant to the customer, whether it's based on a search key, a search query they made or based on the context of, uh, of where they are on the website or based on a past purchase. And so that's something as a, as, as a technology that we have to get right for retailers in order for the customer to really feel the benefit. So what do you see as like the biggest changes, you know, moving forward? Obviously, we just like went through a pandemic. Obviously, we're kind of in this digital age and things move quickly. Like what choose, choose the question. What have you seen change in the last five years or what do you see changing in the next five years? It, specifically in relation to? Uh, retail advertising and yeah. Yeah. It's a hyper growth business for retailers because all major retailers have realized, uh, the, 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 the dollars they can create. Right. So they've looked at Amazon and they've said, you know, holy God, these, these guys have built a $30 billion advertising business in 10 or 15 years. We need to get on that train and their motivator is pretty clear. Retailers work in a low margin business, which means they make 10, 10%, you know, on a, on a dollar sale of a product, right? It's a low margin business. It's a competitive business. It's a mature business selling products with advertising. They have a way to bring incremental revenue to the business and at higher margins. So if they run an advertisement on site for a dollar, they get to keep 80 or 90 cents of that dollar. If they run an advertisement off site, they get to keep about 50 cents of that dollar. doesn't matter. It's all high margin to them. It's creating cash flow, a new, a new profit stream, which they can report into the market to make the market feel good about their stock. Um, or more uh, practically, they can use it to reinvest in digital technologies, which is where they know they need to be, right? They need to create great customer experiences online. And these advertising dollars can be used to fund those experiences. So like what? there's... There's just huge motivation from retailers. Now they're realizing uh, that they need to do this and that there's huge benefit if they do it right. 
Uh, okay, so now taking a step back, uh, more on the sponsor card side, can you just tell us a little bit more um, about sponsor card and, and where you're at? Yeah, so we've we, we've just launched sponsor card in. Uh, we're still in stealth, to be fair, but like sponsor card is is a solution for retailers to leverage that customer data that I just talked about, the search data, the the audience data, contextual data, to leverage that information uh, through a video format. And so traditional video formats aren't built for retail. They're built for users of free websites who consume content where the publisher is not so concerned about the user experience. And so I've used the word user in the free content, online free content consumption. There's no users in retail. There's just customers. And retailers obsess over customers. I've been to conferences as we went through research, the research phase of this product and company. Customer, retailers obsess over customers. So you cannot have a bad customer experience for retailers. They're not going to buy into any sort of technology or vendor service that, that they deem as a bad customer experience. And traditional video, traditional online video solutions kind of fit that bill, which is it's a disruptive to the customer experience because it slows down the site or it's not connected to the customer journey and the product that they're wishing to buy. It doesn't allow them to leverage their data on site in a way that creates relevant sponsored recommendations. And so we've seen this. We've seen that no retailers are using video. We know that video is a pillar of online media. And we thought, okay, we need to design a video solution that fits the customer journey, that fits the, the customer experience that retailers want, and then allow them to use their data on a platform um, that can serve highly recommended video uh, advertising to customers. That helps them generate more sales ultimately because that's what, that's what retailers want to do. They want to generate more sales in as much as they want new advertising dollars coming in. So there's kind of a, a, a two-pronged goal that we need to achieve for retailers there with sponsor card. And what has been the biggest challenge uh, getting it started? I think the biggest challenge for any startup or, or business that's in the starting phase is credibility and awareness. Um, and the, like using my experience, that like the way I want to overcome that challenge is to build the business in public. Like I want to build a company in public. And we talked about a li little bit about this know offline i don't fully understand what that means in terms of like an operational rollout but i want to be transparent and i want to be authentic to the market and i want to speak directly to the market and, and so for example what that means maybe one one way we do that is through linkedin through creating authentic content published through linkedin and i think that's the difference today versus 10 or 15 years ago where today you can reach directly to your customer your communication um Whereas before you had to go through trade publications and third parties and pay fees. Um, and so like that doesn't mean it, it's easy. Now you have direct access because what customers today want is authenticity in the communication. Nobody wants another email in their inbox saying, hey, this is a great service. Listen to me. People want information that, help them, that helps them do their job better. And so this is kind of... You know, I'm just kicking the can with you on what building in public means, but this is the this is the vision I have for this company and the way in which I think we can help ourselves overcome lack of awareness and lack of credibility and, and achieve those first enterprise customers. 
Is there anything you've done specifically, anyone you've hired, brought on the team or anything like that, that kind of helps you overcome that? Yeah. So like we, we've, we, we have put together some advisors. We put together an advisory board that has helped us with introductions into uh, some of these enterprise retailers. So I, I would say to any entrepreneur out there, uh, find people who are really experienced in the industry that you want to crack, uh, entice them with the sales pitch for your idea and your business. And hopefully you have the technology or, or the service already developed so they can feel it and then sell them to come on for in, in return for some advisory. And I, I actually spoke to another founder about this a few months ago, and he kind of made me wise to the extent in which you can utilize this kind of uh, tactic as a founder, because I've always kept my advisory boards quite small. Um, but he said, listen, I, I had like 20, 30 people on the advisory board and I was just, I would just give them increments of shareholding and I would probably just utilize them to get one thing, maybe one introduction. Um, and so, you know, th this is something I want to try out on this, this journey is okay. Let's maybe we can expand the advisory board to just getting people in to do one thing specifically, as opposed to trying to get like one guy in who could be your catch all. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and just to kind of change the subject a little, you've mentioned data numerous times. Um, so, you know, what, what uh, data and reporting tools do you use? Do we use? Yeah. Either the old company or this company. I mean, we've always built our own data and reporting tools, right? So as a, you know, product technology company, we're creating these services for, for the clients, right? So even with display.io who served, you know, online app publishers, these publishers would get a platform in which they could log into to pull a reporting on how much revenue they generated or what was the price of ads they were getting. And so we've kind of trans transferred that, that product understanding into retail. So we're giving the retailers the platform to sit it, to, to build the campaigns through these unique kind of customer centric video formats and then apply their data to target the, the campaigns the way they want to, and then to pull reporting on how the campaigns are performing. So we've kind of built our own tools, but if you're, ta are you talking more client facing or infrastructure? Uh, both, but actually the question I have to that is, you know, whenever someone gets to a project like this where they need something, whether it's software or whatever, uh, the question is usually build by your partner. Um, and you obviously decided to build on this. Why not buy your partner? Why not buy or partner? Well, you, typically in the beginning, you're not in a position to buy. Oh, you mean to buy a service or to buy a company? No, to buy a service, right? Like to buy, you know. Uh, to use to Amazon buy. as opposed to build your own? <laughs> not necessarily Amazon, but like, you know, for example, QueryStacks, my, 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 my old company, um, the API for their data was just horrendous. Um, and so therefore no one, could, it was really not that many people were able to build um, but we kind of saw that as the opportunity, right? Like if we can figure out how this API works, then we can build the solution. And then that is a service on itself as opposed to someone. And then, and then obviously, you know, the agencies that we sold to, they are either partnering with us, you know, or they're buying the service from us, um, where we decide to build. So just wanted to understand if you had any thoughts on, you know, why you decided to build this custom solution as opposed to going out and seeing if there's another service out there. Yeah. Well, I think like we, we you know, it, it, the way retailers use our platform is that they upload their entire inventory database onto our platform. And so that has to be our API. Now, there may, they may be using a third party to transfer that information in which we'll have to plug into. Um, but, you know, we, 
I think infrastructurally we we have services, but in the go-to-market, the, the product that we we've designed, it's it's our own technology. But if you look at the infrastructure, the question for us right now is: Should we continue on our own server build, or should we use AWS? And what's the cost between yeah. you know going from our own build into AWS? And should we, you know, what all is of your these guys process through that? That that's a great example. What is your thought process through that, and why you will go one direction or, or the other? It's a balance of cost because that's what you know server should boil down to. What is the cost? Uh, because I think all other things considered equal, the main thing being uptime, so that the service is always up. Um, cost is your only factor. And we had an experience with AWS, and this gets back to the origin story of Display.io. All of these server prov providing companies, AWS, Google, Microsoft, what they do is they give you credits. They give you like $10,000 worth of free you know, credits for your service, uh, to, to use their service as your startup. And you're like, as a startup, you're like, holy shit, this is great. You know, Amazon's cool and Google are cool. And we had a meeting with the Google sales rep. It's Google. Let's do it. And so like you get onto their stack and then all, you're kind of tied in. And to do, once you're tied in, you start to scale and then you start to realize, oh shit, the, the, these cloud bills are just, you know, decimating my profit. And we had this experience after a few years. And so then, then it becomes, how the hell do we get off of this? stack this cloud stack we can't maintain it was specifically it was amazon we can't maintain this it doesn't make sense it's eating our profits alive and so we had the big question how do we get off and so getting off it's not easy you've got to do a server migration and that has huge risk it has huge risk that your service will go down for your clients which means you might churn your clients and hmm. uh, it, it, you know you might have so much data flowing across that uh, you won't actually successfully migrate we had that experience as well we had a guy try to migrate us three times until CTO stepped in and just yanked the chain and we, we got migrated onto our own stack. So like, I think you've got to be careful about the services that you choose to use in the beginning and um, both from the quality of service and then uh, the cost structure, the unit economics as you scale the business. Is this going to eat into my profit or is this going to facilitate my profit? That's what entrepreneurs need to be aware of when they're kind of tapping into these services, which might seem cool in the beginning. Uh, but ultimately might backfire. Yeah, uh, there are definitely gobs and gobs of free service opening. We'll call them like opening free services for, for startups that will just punch you on the back end. Yeah, my friend literally just sent me like a stack of services. It looked like there was 25 services in it from logo generation of your startup oh. uh, all the way through to like deployment of your cloud. Like, And it's yeah. like, you know, if you were to use that, you would have no profit. You were probably in debt, in, in, in some sort of debt. Yeah, and, but, uh, and just about it, uh, like HubSpot, you know, is an example, uh, obviously free in the beginning and then the cost starts. I don't know if there's a better or I don't know if there's a cheaper, I'm sure there's a cheaper option out there, but similar, they try to get you with the free and then they just start tacking on the bills once you start to grow, which good and bad. We've had I guess. that experience, which I mean, yeah, we've had that experience with HubSpot uh, where, you know, you're all, you, you straight up to $10,000, $20,000 and the way they get you is through sales and marketing automation, the kind of stuff that you would need for a sales team. But in the beginning, you don't really know about because you're just on the $50 a month free service. And then you're like, hey, I'm scaling my sales sales team and I've got some marketing people in. Now we need to have marketing automation, you know, drip campaigns, yada, yada. And we need we, the salespeople need some sort of automation of of the processes they're doing. And then all of a sudden you're at $10,000, $20,000. And we have had that, ex that exact experience, you know, thinking we moved off of a pipe drive, which is a kind of indie 
CRM. We moved from Pipedrive to HostBot thinking HostBot would give us the things we need, but ultimately it came at a cost. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously it's a great business model for them, but I think you have to ask the question, like, is this a good business model for me um, to, right. to continue to scale? And at scale, at scale, it probably is the right thing to do. But we're talking, yeah. if we're talking about the beginning, then maybe not. Sure. No, I, I completely agree. Um, so as we kind of come towards the end, uh, I have a few kind of basic questions that I tend to ask at the end. And first one is, if you had to teach something to other marketers, what would it be? What are marketers? Define what a marketer is. Someone who just graduated college and they want to start their own marketing firm. Go and do it. And you are there's professing. no other way. What are you professing? I mean, there's. I can't tell you what way to do it. You'll have to. You'll have to go through your own journey. You know, in the beginning, we kind of talked about hubris and, and ego, and um, that that was my entrepreneurial journey. Um, but I, I, the, the one thing I would say to anybody that wants to start anything is just start. And if, uh, what do you enjoy talking about the most that you normally don't get an opportunity to talk about? I mean, personally or professionally? Either, truly either. Uh, philosophy for sure. You know, I rarely get to talk about that. Also, you know, my interest in hardcore music, particularly New York hardcore and the history of New York hardcore through the 80s, 90s and the CBGBs, you know, Bad Brains, all of those guys. I don't get to talk about that anymore. I'm 43. I'm married with two kids. I have to keep that in the closet. I mean, I'm going to a matinee hardcore show this Saturday here, here in New York. And, you know, I'm going on my own and there will be like 21 year old kids in the room. So it's I don't get a chance to talk about that. I mean, professionally. I just love to talk like one of the things that the coolest thing that I, I get to do as an entrepreneur is to talk to other entrepreneurs because there's this kind of there's just this bond. There's this un, untalked about bond that you've 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 gone through it, you know, and when you know, you know, and you have that immediate connection with someone. There's no BS. There's no selling. There's nothing like that. And so I haven't done enough of that. And actually, there's a. There's an event next week. A guy's organizing. He just he has a, a company just raised Series A, gone through the whole nine yards, and he's organizing an event with I think 15, 20 founders. And I can't wait to get at that. You know, for me, that's therapy. You know, to talk to people who've gone through it. Yeah, and they have like roundtables and things that that you can sometimes find. But I, I think it's you know it's hard to get through the the crap that's out there and find find the good ones. Uh, exactly. Also, In Curated. It has to be curated by folks that have really gone through it, you know? And you trust, right? And, exactly. and if, uh, if anyone needs to reach out to you, they just got their warm, not warm intro, but their, their first line of their cold email. Uh, if you're trying to reach out to you, uh, hardcore music philosophy or Arsenal, I'm giving everyone else another one, Arsenal uh, soccer <laughs> or football. Um, that I, hey, man, sometimes when you need to reach out to someone, that first part in the email says, dude, heard you on a podcast. Uh, also love hardcore music, also love philosophy, man, I'm sure it'll get your response from you. So absolutely. Just be authentic and right. you'll get, you'll get a reply. And the last question, uh, two more questions, actually, uh, any books or podcast recommendations? Business well, marketing, not yeah. business. That's a clear one. I mean, you, you know, nonfiction, the one book that I've consistently read through the years is the Prince by Machiavelli. For me, that sums up my approach to business and, and the business environment. 
uh, is a Machiavellian hyper-realist approach. Now, I'm not suggesting you go out and murder anybody or murder your enemies, but you should take that approach. It's a short book. It's easy to read. Machiavelli's The Prince. And then in nonfiction, I'm not a big nonfiction reader, but uh, 100 Years of Solitude was a book that just blew me away. Um, so I, I recommend you check that out if you're into nonfiction or if you're into fiction, excuse me. Uh, anything else? They're basically the two that have stuck with me. Yeah. This is my favorite question. So I usually like milk this one as, as much as possible. Um, all right. Last question is, are you looking to hire uh, any positions right now? Yeah, we're looking to hire in sales and marketing roles. And we're also looking to increase a, a, a footprint on our advisory board. So if you fit any of those within retail media, then we want to talk to you. Perfect. And as we come up to the end of the episode, uh, I just want to give you an opportunity to mention where people can find you and anything else you'd like to end with. Yeah, just, you know, do a search on LinkedIn, Stephen Caffrey, uh, and, you know, go get in touch. But anything, if you want to talk about anything, just get in touch with me. I'm available. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I hope everyone has a very successful day. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Marketing Agency podcast. I hope you got a ton of value out of this episode. And before we go, I just want to thank our sponsors, DevNoodle. DevNoodle provides marketing agencies with the ability to offer their clients unlimited website design, build, and management services with fixed monthly plans. If website design, development, and maintenance is holding your agency back from growing, please reach out to us at devnoodle.com, where we make websites easy, easy for you and easy for your clients, devnoodle.com.